It is good to worship with you this morning. And I will confess that it's a little bittersweet for me this morning. It's our final sermon in our series in the book of Galatians. And, you know, maybe we should just start back at chapter 1, go through it again. I've left a lot out. So it's, it's been really sweet to my own heart, and I, I trust to yours. And we've been asking this question throughout the book, is Jesus enough? And that was the question for the Galatian churches. That's what they had in their mind. And if we're honest, that's the question that you and I have in our mind in the day-to-day life that we've been given here in this world. We often wrestle on a Monday morning, is Jesus enough for me? And Paul has spent six chapters declaring to the Galatian churches, to us, yes, yes, Jesus is enough. He is enough, not just someday in heaven, but today. Jesus is enough because he changes lives. He's enough so you and I are equal and we can live in grace. Jesus is enough to make me right in God's eyes. His law teaches and his promises restore. Jesus is enough because being a child of God is enough. Jesus is enough because he doesn't give up on his people. Because Sarah is our spiritual mother. Jesus is enough because living for him is true freedom. And Jesus is enough because his spirit leads me to love. I was talking with Pastor Dave this week, and you know, really our hope through all of this that Paul's message has been clear these last four to five months. Faithful followers of Christ do not require external laws human effort, or perfect performance to be right in God's eyes. Those things will not save your soul, and they will not earn God's favor with you in the Christian life. Faithful followers of Christ rest, rest in the finished work of Jesus. He is enough. Jesus, the God-man, was born of a woman, as we've read in our book. He was born under the requirement of the law, and he lived a perfect life. No sin. No sin. In thought, in word, in action, he fulfilled all of God's laws and demands on humanity. The the very laws that you and I are unable, unwilling, uninterested in following. And what did Jesus do with that perfect life? He cashed it in. He exchanged it. He substituted himself in our place. He died on a cross, suffered the wrath of God for sin he never committed. He paid our penalty. He died. Here's how one well-known song describes it. How deep the Father's love for us. How how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. 
For those of you who are new or exploring Christianity, or you've been a faithful follower for years and you just need the reminder, the Scriptures teach that Jesus rose again from the grave three days later after His crucifixion. Literally, physically. And whoever believes in Him and His promises that His work on the cross was enough, they receive, they receive forgiveness, adoption, a new heart, God in you, joy, satisfaction, and one day eternal life. Is Jesus enough? Yes. Yes, He is enough. He is. In light of this, grab a copy of the Scriptures. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, we are going to be in verses 11 through 18. And this morning, Paul brings us to a passage that summarizes much of the argument that Paul's been going through in this letter. The sermon title and question for us to consider this morning is this. What is your motivation? What what are we motivated by? And it's a fair question to ask. And if we're honest, we often have mixed and competing motivations and desires. We talked about this in Galatians 5. But our motivation in our choices, our motivation in the commands of Scripture that we choose to emphasize or follow, they reveal who our real allegiance is for, who we live for. Motivation is a key aspect to the Christian life. In answering this question, what is our motivation? I believe Paul would send us off as we finish this letter with this central reality. Jesus is enough because he brings true peace. He does. That might be hard to hear or believe this morning. Uh, You may be longing for true peace in the midst of swirling circumstances or in the season of life that God has you in right now. But our question of motivation will show us how peace is attainable. First, Paul would have us consider the motivation to elevate self. To elevate self. Read with me, please, verses 11 through 13. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand? It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. It was common uh, in this day, in Paul's day, for letters to be dictated. And we see this from other letters that Paul had written. He would dictate his letter. A secretary, if you will, would pen carefully everything that Paul would say, and then the letter would be sent out to the individual, in this case, to these Galatian churches. It's here that Paul takes the pen, or the quill, He takes it and he writes in his own hand this last section to put personal emphasis on his message. He argues that these Jewish converts, these Judaizers, these legalists 
who say Jesus isn't enough, their real motivation is really for themselves and not for God and certainly not for the Galatian believers who are being tempted to listen to false teaching. Paul summarizes the Judaizers', Judaizers motivation of self, I think, in two ways in our passage. Look again at the, verse, uh, the end of verse 12 here. Paul says, In order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. What we see here is the fear of man. The fear of man. It, it probably went something like this. These legalists saw how Christians were being persecuted by Jews everywhere. Paul himself, once upon a time, was killing Christians because their belief in Jesus was viewed as heresy by the Jewish community, by devout leaders. So now these legalists think to themselves, okay, Jesus, sure, he's the Messiah, but I want some cred with the Jewish community. So I'll say it's Jesus and the Old Testament law. And that way, I'll be safe. I won't be persecuted. I won't be judged. See, if they declare Jesus was enough, and that he fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law on their behalf, well, what would it mean? Well, it would mean the loss of respect. It likely would mean a loss of good standing in the community, the loss of a job, even the loss of their life, the disdain of neighbors and even family. Believing in Jesus had consequences. Paul argues here in our passage that part of the motivation of these legalists was to protect their own skin. They were about themselves. See, they wanted the Galatian churches to play this fuzzy math where it was belief in Jesus plus following the Old Testament law. Because it would likely mean less persecution, less judgment, less opposition if they gave in to the Jewish culture around them. Now, 2,000 years have passed, and not much has changed, has it? Think globally first for a moment, globally. Data hasn't been put out for this past year, but in 2020, there were over 3,500 Christians killed for their faith in Nigeria. 307 killed in Pakistan, over 100 in Mozambique. In Pakistan, there were roughly about 1,000 Christians forced to marry non-Christians. China arrested, jailed, or detained without charge over 1,100 Christians. China also saw the most attacks and or closures of churches at over 3,000. All this information is available, by the way, in the ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. I would encourage you to look it up, to be on their email list or get their free newsletter so you too can pray for persecuted Christians all over the world. But what's the point? Now, the point is this. Much of the persecution would stop. Much of it would stop in Paul's day and in our own if faithful followers of Christ, gave in to the culture around them. So the Galatian churches, if they just said it was Jesus plus Old Testament, there's no persecution, there's no judgment. Today, 
if faithful followers said Jesus and Allah are co-equals, if they said Jesus was simply one of many gods or one of many truths, well, persecution would stop. The United States does not know this kind of persecution, and we do no one any favors by uh, pretending that we've suffered to the same extent. However, the underlying question is still the same for us, brothers and sisters. Just as it was with the Judaizers, the Galatian believers, faithful followers all over the world and here at Lakewood Church, the underlying question is this. What are we motivated by in the Christian life? Is it a fear of man? Well, I think far too often it is. We are motivated by a fear of man and the potential persecution and opposition around us. You know, I I thought of this even practically how this might reveal itself uh, in our church, in our own souls. And you could point to a lot of things for a lack of evangelism in our own life, but one of the things certainly, certainly is a fear of man. Now, we don't do ourselves any favors by being weird and awkward about it. Just so you know, you can be a normal person and talk to someone about Jesus. It's possible. Try it. But there is this sense in which we often have a fear. Well, if I say a truthful, plain, hopefully winsome word to my family member, my friend, my coworker, my neighbor. They may not talk to me. We're motivated by a fear. And uh, with others having their heads buried in the sand in the Middle East right now for living the Christian life, how silly of us to fear opening our mouths with the freedom and luxury we have in our own country. But it's not just even a fear in evangelism, this fear of man that prohibits maybe us talking about Jesus. But what about a fear of man when it comes to just basic Christian living? And it's not just a teenager thing either. Why are some of you afraid to live out Christ in your community, to your family? Why do some of you laugh at jokes you know you shouldn't? Why do some of you give in to the cultural things around you? Because we have a fear. We have a fear of what others may think. It's true. I I see it in myself. But it's not, really, that is a motivation of self, by the way. If, like these legalists, we're trying to save our own skin, not being thought poorly of, not being oppressed or have any kind of opposition in our life, that is an elevation of self, and we're guilty of it. But the motivation to elevate self wasn't just about the fear of man. It was also about the trap of reputation. Look at the end of verse 13 again. Paul says, They desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Now, there is some overlap here with the fear of man, but Paul makes plain is that these Galatian believers getting circumcised, putting themselves back under the Old Testament law, saying in practice that Jesus wasn't enough, what it did, what it produced, is it would work toward the boasting and the reputation of these legalists. Now, that might read a little strange to you and I. How would the Galatian believers putting themselves under the law build the reputation of these false teachers and legalists? One word. Tribalism. 
These legalists were encouraging the Galatian believers to go back under the law because their ultimate motivation, ultimate motivation was self, to be seen well by the community, to have the reputation as being the religious elites of their community, and to build their brand and tribe. And we know a lot about this too in our day, don't we? There are times that our church Our culture and our own hearts are motivated by self. Motivated by being right. Motivated by building a personal brand or tribal group. And these are, don't get it twisted, these are ungodly, ungodly selfish motivations that are contrary to the character, the work, and the example of Jesus Christ our Savior. See, these Galatian churches, they're being swayed away from Jesus. To not love Jesus and rest in him, but to love a system. To love a tribe. Is it possible that we too fall into the trap of reputation? Is it possible that we too at times desire our tribe, our church, our particular doctoral bents, our extra-biblical preferences, and our sinful motivations to be what we aim to win people to? Is that possible? Oh, brothers and sisters, I think it's possible. Do we desire to make much of and elevate self or Christ? Let's confess now as a church and faithful followers that there are too many times in our life that we elevate ourselves by the fear of man and the trap of reputation and tribes. May God protect us. And I know he will. But but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end here. There's more to the letter. There's more to the passage. See, there's a great contrast being made here. Those who would elevate self. And then next we see that, and by the way, that motivation of self, it doesn't bring true peace, Paul's saying here. Not true peace. Look as Paul urges us to consider the motivation of Christ. Read verses 14 and 15 with me. But But, in contrast, yeah, elevating self, okay, put that to the side, but, I lost my spot, okay, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creation. But as for Paul, what is his motivation? What is it that excites him? What is it that spurs him on to write to these Galatian friends of his? What would cause him to initially serve them in weakness, to be consumed by care and concern for their souls? What would motivate Paul to write this letter declaring again and again and again and again that Jesus is enough, that Jesus can satisfy, that Jesus can bring peace, that Jesus can heal a heart, that Jesus can meet you in your need? What's his motivation? 
Paul's ultimate motivation we read in verse 14. It's to boast in Christ. His pride and joy in life was not to make much of himself or to win people to his tribe or to his preferences, but to make much of Jesus. And I think Paul sums up his boasting in two ways here. First, Paul boasts of the death of an old life. That's what he's saying in verse 14, by the way. When he says the world has been crucified to him and he to the world, in contrast to Paul boasting about himself and being motivated by elevating himself, he points to a man, the God-man who was brutally beaten and put up on a cross. That's his boast. He says, that's my boast. That, you want to know what I'm proud of? That guy, dead guy on a cross. That's what I'm proud of, Paul says. A man who died on a tree. And that's a difficult thing for our world to understand. And for some of you here or watching online, that might be a difficult thing. What do you mean Paul's boast is in a dead man on a tree? And the world struggles to understand this. The cross of Christ continues to be one of the biggest stumbling blocks for those considering Christianity even today. Some of you here might think, or watching online, you might think, this Christianity, this is an odd religion. Faithful followers of Christ celebrating a grotesque, bloody death? Yes. Yes. The cross of Christ, as Paul says here in verse 14, is the means by which you and I experience a death and a crucifixion ourselves. Faithful followers of Christ have experienced the death the consistent declaration of Scripture, my friends, is this. Faith in Jesus, trust in His perfect sinful life, sinless life, trust in His sinless life, and His sacrificial death on our behalf, it does something. Faith in Jesus does something. It binds us to Him. We become part of Him. He lives in us. And by him, we experience a death of a life. Our hearts are supernaturally transformed. And certain things in our life have been put to death already. And everything else in our life is being continually put to death as we grow in him. We have been changed. So, my friends, we have died we have died to loving ourselves more than God and neighbor. We have died to chasing satisfaction in the temporary things of this world. We have died to biting and devouring one another in our relationships. To an allegiance to temporary tribes of this world. We have died to anger, lust, pride, gossip, and criticism to putting our hope in things that ultimately can't satisfy. We have died to the possibility of the Vikings ever winning a Super Bowl. My boys got Vikings jerseys for Christmas. I mean, someone has to tell them, right? Faithful followers, we have died. A crucifixion. There's been a death to the world and a death of the world in our hearts. 
Lakewood, press into this reality this week. We, we are citizens of another world. We long for the celestial city. Yes, we sojourn and live in this world and in the life that God's given us here, but it does not hold us. It does not capture our hearts, and it does not bring true peace. The elevation of Christ, not just in the death of an old life, but also the birth of a new life. I could just directly, uh, from verse 15, I should read that again. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Here's what one commentator said about verse 15 here. Again, listen, Paul's saying circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't count for anything. New creation matters. Commentator says this. Listen to this. Paul has nothing invested in this issue. For it represents a distinction that has no ultimate significance. <laughs> what? What? What do, you, what do you mean he has nothing invested in the issue? What do you mean circumcision and uncircumcision? They, they don't have any ultimate significance. What has the whole letter been about? Hasn't the last six chapters been about the implications of how you view circumcision? The requirement of the Old Testament law and the vanity of our human effort to be right in God's eyes? What have we been doing? My friends, do you see what is being said here? The motivation to elevate Christ, the celebration and the reality of a new birth, a new life is this. You care about what really matters. You care about what really matters. Circumcision and uncircumcision, are they important? Do they represent a certain understanding of theology? Do they have practical implications on how a faithful follower choose to obey Jesus? Yes, yes. Yes to all of it. But does it have the ultimate place of importance in the mind of someone who has new life in Jesus? This is, this is crazy what we're reading here. Circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. What matters is a new creation. What matters is what matters. What matters is what's central. And Paul's saying it's Christ. It's his gospel. What really matters for the faithful follower of Christ? What ultimately lasts? What should be my boast, my confidence, and my motivation in life? Well, the end of verse 15 tells us. A new creation. Is this true of us, Lakewood? Is the central reality of a new creation, the gospel, Jesus being enough, is that at the core of our motivation and the boasting of our new life? Are we known for this? Circumcision, uncircumcision? No, 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 no. New creation. Are we known for this? Does our social media feed reflect this? Does how we use our money reflect this? Do our words and our thoughts towards people made in the image of God reflect 
this. Too often, too often it doesn't. Too often we are marked by our tribe, our preferences, and our desires. Too often we boast and elevate self. Think for a moment. Just think for a moment. What have you put at the center of your life in place of Christ? Is there anything that Paul would say ultimately counts for nothing, but you count it as everything? Is there? Well, I have a couple in mind. I'm not going to share them with you. <laughs> but, I mean, I, the, yeah, there's some things in our own hearts that we see here. Oh, God help us. But, my friends, there is good news. There is good news. Christ came to save us from the present evil age. He came to rescue us from our human effort. He came to free us from things that ultimately don't have eternal significance. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died and rose again to give you a new life. And what does that new life produce? Read verse 16 with me. And as for all who walk by this rule, what, what wait, 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 what rule? What rule? The rule that says, external to the side, what really matters is a new creation. For all who walk by this rule, verse 16, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Those who boast in Christ, who elevate the cross of Christ, who live for and walk with Jesus as faithful followers, they have peace and mercy. Isn't that the longing of our heart? Isn't that why some of you showed up here this morning? We came here not to have our ears tickled, not to be stupid blind sheep who drink the, Kool uh, the Jesus Kool-Aid, but we came here. We came here wondering if God would meet us. We came here seeking the power of God to be present, for our souls to be warmed, to know if God is real and powerful to meet me in the midst of the life that I'm living right now. <laughs> Peace and mercy. That's what I've been seeking. And Paul comes and says, you want peace and mercy? Walk by this rule. Christ matters. A new creation matters. And I love in verse 16, he says, it's available to all. And for all who walk by this rule. Everyone. To the skeptic, it's available. To the wayward sinner. To the Gentile Galatian. To the Jewish convert. To the people of God. Mercy and peace are available. Will you consider this week, my friends, this week, will you consider what a new life, a fresh start, a renewed commitment in walking with Jesus, what that might look like in your life? Are you a young child who finds yourself frustrated with your parents? A lot of heads looking around right now. Are you a bored teenager who's teetering on whether or not following Jesus is worth it? Are you single and wondering what life would have for you? Are you in the midst of figuring out what marriage, career, and family looks like or trying to survive young kids? 
Are you older and facing the prospect of death? Are you lonely because your loved one's no longer here? Are you wrestling with deep personal sin and failure? Are you wrestling with unmet expectations in a life, in a life that you thought would be so much more satisfying? Well, we are all these things, aren't we? By God's grace, in the midst of our circumstances, we are, as faithful followers of Christ, we are growing in our love for Him. We are being led more and more by the Spirit of God, not to be motivated by self, not to have a fear of man, not to have the trap of reputation, but to elevate Christ, to boast of Him, to live with Him, to make Him the center. The new creation is what really matters. My friends, this is already true of your life. You are growing in these things, and by God's grace, the Lord will meet us in the midst of this life. On a Monday morning, even. And if you walk by this rule, he offers peace, mercy, and rest. Lakewood Church, Jesus is enough because he brings true peace. I wonder if you'd say it with me. Jesus is enough. By God's grace, that will not simply be some cute declaration that we make on a Sunday morning. But it will be the conviction, the comfort, the peace, and the drive that meets us in our need this week. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and in his righteousness asking that you would enable us to not just pay lip service, not just to sing a song, not just to say a prayer or sit in a room and hear a word from your scriptures. But Father, that supernaturally we would be men, women, and children who have hearts that are enlarged and in love with Christ. Strip us of pride and reputation. Protect us from elevating self. Give us a fear of you and not the world. God, help us to center on what really matters in this life. It's Jesus. Help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.